Access to data enables rare disease stakeholders to do more and accelerate results. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is becoming as savvy about clinical data as clinicians and researchers. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to be empowered data owners and stewards. Attend the Data DIY workshops and view resources at globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Seth Rotberg and Christina Wolf have each felt the isolation of entering adulthood in the shadow of rare and chronic disease. Rotberg, whose mother was diagnosed with Huntington's disease, had genetic testing as a college student that showed he too will develop the neurodegenerative condition. Wolf has grown up with type 1 diabetes. The two founded R Odyssey to help young adults connect, find social and emotional support, and help them improve their quality of lives. We spoke to Rotberg and Wolf about their own experiences, why they created our Odyssey, and the unique psychosocial issues people with rare and chronic diseases face in transitioning to adulthood. Seth, Christina, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, thanks. for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. We're going to talk about your experiences, your organization, our odyssey, and the challenges young adults with rare and chronic conditions face. Both of you come to this through your own experiences. Perhaps, Seth, we can start with you. Rarecast listeners may remember you from a past podcast. How did you become involved in the area of rare disease? Great question, Danny, and it's always good to be back. I appreciate it. And it really started because my mom was diagnosed with Huntington's disease in 2005 when I was 15 years old. And for those that aren't familiar with the condition, it's a rare neurological genetic disease that slowly deteriorates a person's physical and cognitive abilities over 10 to 20 years. And my mom had it for 17 years, about five to seven of the years she was misdiagnosed. And... Because it's a genetic condition, each child of a parent has a 50-50 chance of inheriting it. So when I was growing up, I was definitely in denial. I felt like I lost out on that childhood experience because I didn't have anyone to talk to. I didn't know who else could relate. My friend's parents were, quote-unquote, normal. And I felt embarrassed out in public with my mom due to how she appeared in public due to her physical symptoms. So it took a few years for me to kind of accept it and connect with other young adults in the Huntington's disease space and then later on in the rare and chronic communities who truly understood what I was going through, who I could easily connect to and felt that sense of belonging. And at the age of 20, I decided to go through testing and I tested positive for the condition so I am pre-symptomatic now, but guaranteed to get the condition unless there's 
an effective treatment or cure. And so that's what one of my motivations is for giving back to the health community. Christina, you have type 1 diabetes. I, I know you've had your own path that started with a, a desire to be a doctor, then a therapeutic developer, and then you moved to both healthcare policy and becoming an advocate. What's the journey been for you? It's, it's been actually it, quite different, at least on the outset of everything. So, you know, I never, this diagnosis never really derailed me or um, made me feel like I was less than or out of the ordinary, at least on the initial onset of my diagnosis. Um, but I did, I was so young when it happened. I think, it, I think that was kind of part of it. I, I've always known that this disease management to, to be a part of my life. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, I started becoming a lot more self-aware and I graduated from my master's program, which I studied public, public health in and, um, my aunt gave a toast and she said, Christina, you've always been out in left field. And I think she initially meant for me to um, interpret that as spearheading or blazing the trails. And I did take it that way initially. And then I started kind of journaling about it and really reflecting on what she said and recognized that I had always been out in left field because I always chose to be out in left field. I always chose to separate myself from other people because, you know, in elementary school when I had to prick my finger or give myself shots or even eat snacks to make sure that my levels were normal to manage my disease, I was always looked at as different. And people would say, oh, I wish I had this. I wish I had type 1 diabetes so that I could eat snacks all the time. When really, these people didn't realize that that made me feel a lot different. It made me feel not normal. It made me feel like I didn't fit into the club that everybody else was in. I couldn't have birthday cake at birthday parties. So I was always different. And Seth and I, you know, I didn't really realize that until I was in my early to mid-20s. And then Seth and I connected back in January and shared these experiences where we realize this is a lot more common than just us. I, I've read that the two of you were dating. How did the, you come to connect, and were you dating before or after you founded Our Odyssey? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that one. Um, Christina, feel free to chime in as needed. Uh, it was definitely beforehand. So again, we, we connected in January and really the, the focus and the focus still today is on our odyssey and how we can continue to grow and continue to support others to provide that sense of belonging. And because of our own personal experiences, it was just easy for us to connect about, about what we can do to make our odyssey grow as well as just develop it. So, you know, obviously over time, when you build that, that work relationship up, you guys also, you know, we also connected on a deeper level and, you know, I guess 
that's kind of where I saw it. I, I don't think either of us went into it saying, all right, we're going to co-found this non-profit and then let's also date and enjoy each other's companionship outside of our odyssey and, and the time that we put into that. Uh, it, it just kind of happened and it's, you know, obviously something where we have to balance the, the dating aspect versus the, the work aspect as well. So kind of mixing in the two, but also balancing that out. Christina, feel free to kind of chime in. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we, on the onset of everything, it was 100% kind of, there actually wasn't even a business conversation initially. Um, it eventually turned into that business conversation, organizational uh, mindset. But then you know, there was just a lot of kind of synergistic chemistry between us. He would throw stuff, I, I say, over the fence, and I would catch it and run with it. And vice versa and I think through that we we were just able to connect and kind of see each other and meet each other where we were it made it really easy so well I'm wondering the reason I asked because yes, I, I think balance this, is key. This, this ties into some of the issues I think you're dealing with as as an organization but I'm wondering do you find it easier or harder to date someone with a, a serious and chronic medical condition, did that have any effect on your willingness to become involved with each other? I think that actually probably helped because we both understand how it feels to be kind of on the receiving end. It's interesting you bring this up because actually during the 2019 Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit that happened several months ago, I was part of a, a panel that talked about dating. And it's definitely challenging because you want to connect with someone not just to understand, but understands on a deeper level. And you don't want to force something that's not there. You need to have patience. You need to really understand each other and, and be, be there for each other no matter what happens. I mean, I remember a conversation Christina and I had, you know, at some point during the relationships where we talked about, you know, if, if she's not feeling well or if it gets to a point one day where I start showing symptoms that we're going to be able to care for each other. And that's, you know, something that I think is very important is having those realistic conversations, even if it's talking about the future, but then bringing yourself back to today and enjoying today because you can only plan so far ahead and then you never know what could happen that impacts that, that future planning. And so we always try to remind each other to, to focus on today, one day at a time, one step at a time. And really just, you know, one of the biggest keys, Danny, is listening, listening to one another, being open and honest, <laughs> and, and having that, having that uh, communication, you know, not just with the romantic side of things, but also the work side. So saying, okay, here's what we need to do. Here's how we have to hold each other accountable. And here's how we uh, set boundaries apart of based off of what we're working on. Well, how did our odyssey come about? What was the discussion that led to it? You know, Seth and I met, we started this conversation. He had done some surveys with other young adults, and I am pursuing doctoral research right now, kind of in the health behavior and health economics setting. And so I started pulling and aggregating some data to support and, and kind of prove this unmet need 
And once we kind of had all of the data to, to support it, we decided to start building it. Um, and we got our 501c3 status in August. And here we are in October. Well, what led to the decision to focus on people 18 to 35? I, I think it really came down to looking at what are those needs. And we also looked at the cancer space. There's a lot of organizations that are doing some amazing work in the for young adults in the cancer community. They go up to, I believe, 18 to 39 or so. Um, I've done some work in Huntington's disease with the Huntington's disease youth organization that work with young adults or young people 35 and under. And so we also looked at, well, if we do anything under 18, the parent and guardians may get involved. Not sure how that will work, turn out. And we knew that like early mid thirties is still a, an important time for people who may learn about newly diagnosed, you know, their diagnosis or those that want to help others and be mentors to others based off of their experiences. And then obviously doing some surveys and reaching out to this audience rather than assuming we, we think this is what we want, but asking them. And then as Christina mentioned is the, the data to back it up. So Christina, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the data you found. If you look at kind of health spending and healthcare spending and the way our U.S. healthcare system is set up right now, the age group 65 years old and older are our highest spenders of healthcare money in the United States. Second to that, however, is the age group 18 to 34 years old. And a lot of that is because this age group, since the Affordable Care Act was implemented, a lot of this age group is actually un uninsured or underinsured. Um, and so accidents happen, new diagnoses occur, healthcare spending goes up, as well as the continuation of uh, mental health comorbidities are most highly recognized within this age group. And so the health spending is just very high. And that's, you know, that's a number, that's an economic factor, but then you incorporate the more emotional aspect to that, which is what Seth just spoke to. And it's very clear that this entire age range needs to be addressed. And I think since Seth and I really kind of dove in and started um, doing our meetups and launching our program, we've already uncovered quite a bit of a difference in the age ranges within the 18 to 35-year-old overall range. And so we're trying to address those different uh, there are like three different divisions within that age age range. We're trying to address those differently. Um, so as you get older, you become more self-aware. You're able to process things a lot more effectively and efficiently. Um, but the younger age range, like the 18 to 24-year-olds, may need a little bit more guidance or mentorship. And what do you hear from young adults and people with rare and chronic conditions about their biggest concerns and challenges? Is it professional? Is it work-related? Is it, you know, finding relationships and being in relationships? Or is it is it healthcare-related and getting access to the the type of care they need? 
I think we both heard a different span of those of all of those concerns. I think it really just depends on who it is that we're talking to and kind of what season they're in. You know? Yeah, and just and just adding to that, it's really knowing where they're at in their journey and trying to meet them there versus, you know, we've connected with some young adults who are around the same age, but they have different set of needs. So, you know, they're trying to get access to the right health care. Uh, it's, you know, when you turn 26, health, navigating the health care, you know, health insurance, it's dating, it's family planning, it's grief and loss, transition into college or career. It's really just there's so many different unmet needs that young adults face in this in this subpopulation. Yet a lot of times when we look at it, we look at you know again the ch- children as well as older adults, and then this this middle age sometimes doesn't go as noticed. When we think about transitioning in general, we don't actually look at that holistic approach. I mean, one thing that Christine and I are very passionate about is. That mental health piece, that social emotional connection, so that it helps improve their quality of life. Because at the end of the day, it's really about not just the connection, but finding the right resources, finding your your tribe per se, and feeling a part of a community. Our Odyssey is in its early days. You've got bigger ambitions for the organization than what it is today. I understand you've started by organizing meetups. How did these work? <laughs> Seth, do you want to hit on that, or do you want me to take it? I'll, I'll take it, yeah. So we were trying to figure out what exactly young adults wanted. At the beginning stages, we've gotten suggestions of, hey, maybe build an app, build an online platform. Of course, that, that costs a lot of money, and also – you know, it's, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of effort, and so we were trying to look at other other options, and when doing some, some surveying, actually last year, we found out that young adults were interested in in-person meetups as one of their biggest things, as well as if you look at conferences, whether it's specific nonprofit conferences or larger conferences like Global Genes, there's not always a place for young adults to connect with each other and as well as connect year round. And so it's not, we always say we're not trying to take away the young adults from these communities, but we, we want to empower them and provide year round support where they can meet others going through a similar challenge, network, and, you know, learn from each other. And so that's kind of where it took off. And we've still, you know, it's still a learning curve for us because. We right now are very fortunate that we have we both have a good network where we can just reach out to people that we know and have them spread the word or use social media. But, you know, that next step is working with nonprofits who can help us pass the word out or working with industry to help pass the word out and really ramping it up. I mean, we have about 15, 20 young adults at our meetups that we've had so far, which is exciting and it's awesome. And I think we want to continue to grow that, but continue to also make it intimate so that they can really build those deep relationships. And what's the bigger vision for the organization? How do you see growing it? And what do you hope to be able to provide beyond what you're doing today? So we're we're really starting here on the East Coast. Um, 
trying to build up our programming, pilot, piloting it, making sure that we've got it really well defined before we start expanding. Now, our goal is to keep these meetups, as Seth mentioned, smaller so we can provide a little bit more of an intimate setting, but we want to expand these meetups into the Midwest, out to the West Coast, and the only way we foresee this happening is if we can get a solid group of volunteers, a solid group of sponsors to help us with the funding for these, as well as some patient ambassadors who are leaders and who are looking for opportunities to get more involved and get their voices heard. Um, that is the vision for the next couple, two, two or three years, I would say. Um, we are going to start trying to ramp that up in 2020. But one foot in front of the other, that's what we have to keep telling ourselves. So. And if people want to learn more about the organization or get involved, where can they go? www.ourodyssey.org. Seth Rockberg and Christina Wolf, co-founders of Our Odyssey. Seth, Christina, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so Thank much, you. Jenny. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.